You're listening to the teaching of Calvary Paris. For more information, go to www.calvaryparis.com. 1 Samuel chapter 16, we're going to look at verses 14 through 23. And the passage today is titled, or I titled our message, God is Sovereign Over Evil. God is Sovereign Over Evil. And our passage today is going to naturally lead us into the question, if God, why evil? In other words, if God is good and God is loving and God is all-powerful, then why evil? Why suffering? Why does He allow that to exist? Why does it affect us so much? And we will see that this is a very complicated issue. It has been the reason why some have left the Christian faith because they could find no adequate answers to the question. And yet, I believe even more people have come back to the faith because as they delve into the question, they realize there is a God, an objective moral lawgiver behind the fabric of the universe. And knowing that leads them into deeper truths about God and into a relationship with God. And that relationship with God always leads us further into the truth and helps us to understand God's wisdom. Once we know who He is, once we know not just facts about God, but we have a personal knowledge of God, it's amazing how things change in our hearts. So, The Bible does not treat this issue as being a complicated one. In fact, the Holy Spirit inspired the writers of the Bible to approach this subject head on from the perspective that God is sovereign and in control at all times over all things. And so we need to remember that this morning. The Bible is not here trying to give a defense of God. The Bible just acknowledges, hey, here here He is. This is God. Deal with it, in other words. God is sovereign. He's in control. Now, the Bible does not teach that God causes all things. Just because God is all-powerful, that does not mean that God is the one who causes all things. And as you will see in our passage, it is difficult to understand how if God exists, and He's all-powerful and loving, Why doesn't he stop evil and suffering? So today in our text, we're going to brush the surface of this question. Note that we're brushing the surface of this question. However, as we study, I want us to remember three things. One, God is infinite, okay? That means he had no beginning, he has no end, he is eternal. And because he is infinite, he's, he's beyond our understanding, Secondly, you are finite. I am finite. Meaning we had a beginning. We will have an end physically here on the earth. And, 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 and so we are not going to have the same amount of knowledge that God has as an infinite being. And thirdly, we can never pretend to understand the depths of God's wisdom or his ways. There's, he's just, there's just too much there. So remember those things. It was John Wesley who said this, Bring me a worm that can comprehend a man, and then I will show you a man that can comprehend the triune God. 
It's a good comparison. If we can find an earthworm that can tell us all about ourselves, then we could find a human being that could understand all there is to know about God and his ways. But that's impossible, isn't it? And it was Andrew Murray who said, never try to arouse faith from within. You cannot stir up faith from the depths of your heart. Leave your heart and look into the face of Christ. What does he mean when he says that, guys? Well, he's encouraging us that our knowledge needs to be based in relationship. That as we come to know Jesus Christ, as we walk with Jesus Christ, as we get to know God through the face of Jesus Christ, a lot of these issues that seem so difficult, hey, they don't become so difficult anymore. Because we begin to realize how loving our God is, how merciful He is, how good He is, and how even if there is evil, then there must be something about it in God's plan that is going to bring about greater good. Because He's such a loving God. And an an infinitely good God. Now, when we studied last in 1 Samuel chapter 16, we were talking about the anointing of David. Today, in the second half of chapter 16, we're going to be talking about the condemning of Saul. Verses 14 through 17, we pick it up. And it says in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 14, But the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him. Now, verse 14 is an exact opposite of verse 13, in which we see the Spirit of the Lord anointing David. While God was working in David's life, He is now no longer working in Saul's life. The narrator wants you to see that. We've reached a drastic point of transition within our story. Here, this change is extremely important and the narrator wants you to see it. Now, if you remember from last week, we saw that the Spirit of the Lord came upon David and that's the role of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. He comes upon a man uh, or woman in order to empower them to fulfill God's purpose or task. We contrasted that with the New Testament role of the Holy Spirit, that at the age of the church, or the the day of Pentecost, the Spirit came and filled all believers' lives. Okay, And, And the moment we believe the gospel, we receive the Spirit. He indwells us. Okay, Now, in verse 14 here, though, we're reading that the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. So again, we see that role. Now, if you'll circle the word in verse 14, distressing, that word distressing in your Bible and right in your margin, evil, evil. That's because the the word in Hebrew is ra, kind of like ra, ra, re, kick him in the knee, right? Something like that. But ra there in Hebrew means evil, literally. The idea behind the word is to spoil or to make something or someone good for nothing. To spoil them or to make them good for nothing. So that's the effect of this evil spirit on Saul's life. The verse tells us that it troubled him. Here too, we get further insight from the Hebrew word, which gives the sense that it was troubling Saul in a terrifying way. In other words, it was creating fear in Saul's life. The fact that he was being distressed by this spirit. You might be asking here, hold on a minute, Phil. Are we reading this right? 
Why would God send an evil spirit to trouble Saul? To make him afraid? And here's where we have to understand the context. This is Saul we're talking about. The Saul who rejected the Lord in 1 Samuel 15 and verse 10. The Saul who walked away from God, becoming steadily more arrogant and prideful, which led to irrational decision-making, and led Saul to a place where he completely rejected the Word of God in 1 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 26. So we're talking about a man who has rejected the Lord and rejected the Lord's Word in his life. He no longer wants any part of God working in his heart. Note that. That's a big, important fact about the context. Because of this, Saul has now opened himself up to attack from the enemy. And this is interesting. The Old Testament flushes out the New Testament faith for us. And so we see that it's certainly possible for people in rejecting the Lord and rejecting the Lord's word to open themselves up to attacks from the enemy, from the evil spirits. But this also tells us that even the evil spirits and their master, Satan, can do nothing without God's permission. They're bound by the limits that God places on them. Notice that God sent this evil spirit to distress Saul. That tells us that that evil spirit had to get permission. Now we're all asking the question now, we're probably thinking, well, how can these evil spirits serve God's purposes? Indeed, how can a loving and a good God allow evil spirits and evil to exist at all? This is our Western culture mindset, asking that question. That's what we want to understand. But what we don't always remember is the context here that Saul himself had a hand in opening the door for this in his life. But before we move on, I want to note that this is known as the problem of evil. And we're going to camp out on this for a little bit today, okay? So, the problem of evil in Saul's life is seen in that there's a distressing spirit that has come. Now, Saul still has opportunities here. Saul is able to repent at any time, to surrender his life to God's will, to receive God's word, and to move forward walking with God. But for whatever reason, pride probably, Saul rejects that. Saul refuses to do that. Now, we want to see two reasons. I want to give you guys two reasons here this morning from our text that would, would help us to understand why God is allowing this, why, why God permits this to happen. The first is that it ensures free will. This ensures free will. Evil spirits actually provide people with a choice. Even Saul. Saul, in the text, had a choice to cry out to the Lord and to repent from sin. But if there were no Satan, if there were no demons, if there were no sin, then we wouldn't have a choice in the matter. God, in His sovereign plan, has allowed these things to serve His purposes for a greater good in His eternal plan. Never forget that God always sees the whole picture. 
He's never looking at just one moment. Well, he is looking at one moment, but he sees one moment in a series of every moments. And so he's always working everything together for a greater good, the greatest possible good that he can bring about. And in God's wisdom and foreknowledge, he sees and understands and knows that somehow evil will serve a purpose. One of those is it ensures our free will. How so, you say? Well, by giving us options. By giving us a free choice. You see, if we had no option but to love God and but to choose right, then how would we know if we even loved God? If we had no option but to obey the Lord, how would we know if our obedience came from a genuine heart, a sincere heart? Listen, 17 years ago, actually longer than that, about uh, 18 years ago, I took my bride-to-be, Rebecca, on a special date. I took her to the chart house right on the Pacific Ocean where we could see the waves crashing while we ate dinner. And we ate a, a great dinner. And then I took her on a drive up to the top of a mountain that overlooked the, the ocean there in, in La Jolla, California. It's called Mount Soledad. And there was a giant cross at the top of that mountain. And I recited a poem that I had memorized for her. And, and, and the last line was, Rebecca Ashley Posey, will you marry me? And I got down on my knee. Now what if as I... Yeah, that's romantic, isn't it? Can I, that's, can I get some kudos for that, guys? But when I was down on my knee, I didn't reach into my ankle holster and pull out a gun and be like, what's your answer? Think carefully about what you're going to say right now, Rebecca. I I didn't do that. Because if I was holding a gun to her face while asking her to marry me, I I would never be sure if that yes really meant yes, right? I would constantly have that question. Well, she, she seemed to emphatically say it, but I'll never know if the motive of her heart was genuine, right? So what if, what if after she did stammer out a yes, and I'm holding the gun there, she's like, well, uh, yes, what are you doing, Phil? Yes, okay. What if after she said that, I put the gun away, and I said, well, you're so awesome. Thank you for saying yes. That would just be wrong on so many levels, wouldn't it? How would Rebecca even know if she loves me? And how would I know if she loves me? And why would I praise her for choosing me if I basically forced her into the choice? She had no other option. So listen, evil and sin are serving God's greater purpose for the greater good. Because through evil and suffering we face in our lives, all of us face it. But we grow in character through it. And we grow in the depths of our love. And we grow in our godliness. We also grow in our hope for one day being with God and watching God right all wrongs and take care of evil for good. So that's part of the reason why God allows evil and even permits those evil spirits to distress certain people at certain times, like we see in Saul's life. A second reason for evil is it forms godly character in us. It forms a godly character in us. Again, this answer comes from the Bible's chief reason and purpose for your existence and my existence. Our chief purpose in life is not to be happy and make a lot of cash, okay? Make a lot of money. 
That's not our chief purpose in life. According to why the Bible tells us God created you is so that you could know, enjoy, and glorify God forever. That's your chief purpose. To know, enjoy, and glorify the Lord with your life, the way that you live, the way that you die. So that's your chief purpose in life. But knowing that, we have to have a transition in our lives. We're not born with character. In fact, quite the opposite. (laughs) We're born as selfish, screaming little babies that want our way all the time. And we have to grow. We have to learn things. But listen, we could never know God's goodness. We could never know God's holiness until we know what evil looks like and how it acts. We could never know how much we love God until we learn to deny ourselves, pick up our cross, and follow Jesus daily. The only way that our beliefs are proven, our deep convictions are formed, is by going through tests, going through trials, facing different kinds of suffering in our lives. And think about it. Suffering has good purposes sometimes. In a child's life, suffering can be good because it can teach them how to walk in the truth. I discipline my children in the way that I believe the Bible prescribes for a parent to lovingly discipline children. And although it hurts me as a parent to see my children cry, to see them suffer, even at my own hand, yet I still do it because my love for them is greater. I realize that through disciplining that child, a greater good is going to come about. They're going to grow, and they're going to grow in their knowledge of what is right and wrong. In the same way, if you had a cut on your leg, and it became uh, gangrene infected, and began to go up your leg, the doctors might get to a point where they said, hey, you know what, we need to take that leg off. We actually need to cause pain, we need to cause suffering in order to save your life. So there's another example of how pain and suffering are sometimes the greater good in order to preserve a life. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5, that there are purposes, greater purposes for suffering. It says, and not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance produces character. And character produces hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. You see, the Holy Spirit is working in your life. He's working in my life as we go through tribulations and trials and difficulties. He is working in us to produce a perseverance and a godly character and a patience and a hope for the day when God is going to set things right. And so guys, all of this works together for good. Through testing, your character becomes proven. As you are tested in that temptation over and over again, and you build up, finally you're able to resist and to walk away a free man or free woman. You have produced patience and perseverance, and that proves your character. And then we're filled with hope, that expectation of coming good, a hope that does not disappoint. So listen, God isn't so much interested in what we experience here on the earth, 
Let me say that again. He isn't so interested in what you experience here in the earth, but as to how you respond to what you're experiencing. God knows you live in a fallen world. He's got plans to change that around. But in the meantime, he's making the best of the situation for your good. We will learn, we will grow, we will turn to God in humble submission and seek his help and seek his guidance. At least that's what we hope we'll do. The opposite of that would be to be like Saul and harden our hearts and trudge on without acknowledging God in the midst of that trial, in the midst of that distressing spirit. Verse 15, back in 1 Samuel 16, we continue. It says, And Saul's servant said to him, Surely a distressing spirit from God is troubling you. This is the second of three times that this is going to be mentioned. And I bring it out. I want to note it here. The narrator wants you to know that this distressing spirit is from God. So let's consider for a moment, in some other passages in the Bible, do we see this happening? Does God do this at other times as well? Well, we do see in Judges chapter 9 and verse 23, it says, God sent a spirit of ill will between Abimelech and the men of Shechem. And the men of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. So that happened in Judges 9. Then also in 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 19, we read, Then Micaiah, he's a prophet of God, said, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the host of heaven standing by, on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will persuade Ahab to go up, that he may fall at Ramoth-Gilead? So one spoke in this manner, another spoke in that manner. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will persuade him. The Lord said to him, in what way? So he said, I will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And the Lord said, you shall persuade him and also prevail. Go out and do so. We see God giving permission here to this spirit to go out and to do that work. So evil spirits then seem to work in at least one one of these three different ways. They deceive or trick people into doing what they want them to do. Secondly, they lie to them. They sell them a lie. Or thirdly, they oppress them. And of course, we know that given the opportunity, evil spirits will also possess or control a person from inside. Okay? That's called possession. It's rare, but it happens. Now, all of this is permitted by God, the Bible is telling us and can even accomplish God's purposes in the world that we live in, because God is sovereign over evil. We can't claim to know how God is able to allow evil to exist, because we're finite creatures. We can give some reasons, but those reasons are not all-encompassing reasons. They don't answer the whole issue. There's no way we can even come close to knowing everything that God knows. Yet we do know that God, in His infinite knowledge, for some reason has allowed evil to exist and still accomplishes His purposes. So what's our conclusion on this then? Our conclusion must be this. God is all-knowing and all-powerful. God is also love. Those are... True, we see throughout Scripture. Those are attributes of God. But we also see that evil exists. 
Therefore, if God allows evil to exist, then it is because he is accomplishing some greater good that we cannot fully understand because of our finite knowledge. This is, a, this is probably a good place to come to. This is a good conclusion to reach. Rather than try to stand in God's place and explain everything for him, remember like Job's friends did? Job's friends tried to do that. <laughs> they all got rebuked because they were all wrong in different ways. At the end of it all, there was no sufficient answer given. And the idea is that, that hey, <laughs> we don't understand God in his ways, in its, in, our, in its entirety. But we do know he's good, and we do know that evil exists, and so there, there has to be some reason for the greater good why God is allowing that. Augustine, that great saint of God, who was once walking upon the shore of the ocean, thinking about things like this. this, Why is there evil and suffering? And as he meditated, he observed this little boy who had a little, one of those conch shells in his hand. He was running to the water and he would fill it up with seawater and then he was running back onto the beach and he was pouring it into a, a hole, a moat of a castle that he had built in the sand there. And Augustine asked him, what are you doing? And the little boy said, I'm trying to fill up this hole with, with seawater. And, and in that moment, the Lord spoke to him and he said, that's exactly what you're doing. You're trying to take the ocean and fit it into a tiny little hole in the sand. That is what we often try to do. Standing on the shores of time trying to get a little infinite mind, or trying to put into our little infinite, our finite minds, the things of an infinite God. And it's just not going to work, guys. It's a hopeless endeavor. But we need to be content, as Augustine found, to be content with the, to, to let God know some things which we cannot know. And I think that's important for us to understand. We can trust in the goodness We can trust in the love of God to work all things together for good to those who love God, who are called according to His purposes. That's the promise we have from Romans 8, 28, guys. It's a promise that still stands today. It's a promise that lives today. And I want to say one last thing before we move on from this uh, issue of the problem of evil today, and that is this. If we really wanted God to remove and stop all evil from happening in this world, think about that, that would include you and me. God would have to remove you. He would have to remove me. Because we, our human nature, is evil. We lie. We cheat. We steal. Maybe perhaps not on the physical level, but in our hearts we do. What did Jesus said? Jesus said, if you look upon a woman with lust for her in your heart, that's equal to committing adultery with her. So Jesus took the law of God and applied it to the motives of our hearts. On that standard, by that standard, all are guilty. All have evil inside of us. Sin comes from inside of us. And so God would have to eliminate us as well, guys. All of these things that we could think about, again, we're just brushing the surface of this. There are many other reasons why we could say that God allows evil. There are many other things that we could bring into this argument. There's also a very visceral side of this that doesn't have anything to do with logic. 
but it has to do with people that have come face to face with evil things, and they're dealing with that in their hearts, and it's a very real thing for them. That's, there's a different way to address that. We're not going to get into that today. Now that we've covered that, though, that main idea that the narrator wants us to see in this chapter, let's continue in verse 16. In verse 16, it says, Let our master now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is a skillful player on the harp. And it shall be that he will play it with his hand when the distressing spirit from God is upon you, and you shall be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide me now a man who can play well and bring him to me. After verse 17 here, the narrative now is going to change. And in verse 18, it's going to focus now on David and how God is working his sovereign plan in David's life. So check it out. We see the providence of God in David's life. Verse 18. Then one of the servants answered and said, Look, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a mighty man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a handsome person. And the Lord is with him. Let's pause it right here. Look at that resume. David's got a great resume going for him. He's known as being a skillful uh, uh, harpist, being a courageous warrior, wise in his words. And on top of that, he's a good-looking guy, too. And if that's not enough, the, the, the icing on the cake is it says the Lord is with him. And, and I think that's really the most important thing there. The Lord was with David. Little does he know that his, this resume is going to be what drives a wedge between him and Saul. Saul's going to become extremely jealous of David's uh, resume, all the great things he has going for him. For now, though, we realize that God's hand is on David. God's plan is unfolding miraculously, just as it always does. In other words, guys, I want to comfort you with this today. God is always working for your greater good. God is always working, even if it's behind the scenes and you don't see it. God loves those that love him and are called according to his purposes. He has a greater good in mind for you. And as you trust in him, just like he did for David, as you surrender to him, just like David was in that relationship, God brought these things about. No one could have guessed that David was going to get called in from the sheep herding the sheep to the palace of Israel. But God knew. God knew. God had set up those circumstances. Continuing on, verse 19, Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, a skin of wine, and a young goat, and sent them by his son David to Saul. So David came to Saul and stood before him, and he loved him greatly. And he became his armor bearer. Then Saul said to Jesse, saying, or sent to Jesse, saying, Please let David stand before me, for he has found favor in my sight. Verse 23. And so it was, whenever the Spirit from God was upon Saul, that David would take a harp and play it with his hand. And then Saul would become refreshed and well, and the distressing spirit would depart from him. It's interesting here, isn't it? that Saul would find a refreshing time. He would find healing while in the presence of David, who is anointed by the Holy Spirit of God. 
Observe with me here that it's at those moments when David is worshiping on the harp, filled with the Spirit of God, that Saul finds relief. Now this should have spoken volumes to Saul. This was meant to be a message, a message to him. That as David began to play, the evil spirit would flee, reminding Saul, hey, in the presence of the Lord, there's peace. In the presence of God is where you find where you're supposed to be. You find that everything's right. There's a point of application for us here today in these verses, church. Instead of TV, how about God and me? How about when the temptation comes, instead of running to something to lose yourself in, we we make that someone and we lose ourselves in God? What if instead of Netflix, we started listening to some praise licks? (laughs) What if instead of YouTube, you kneel in the presence of the king and you begin to pray? What if instead of Hulu, you turned to Psalms 2? You began to lift up praise and worship to the king. The king of kings, who Psalm 2 tells us will one day come and set up his kingdom and rule and reign in justice. You see, oftentimes we are faced with temptation. We have distressing spirits that are oppressing us from the world's from the family situation, from the things that we're facing in life. But instead of running to the Lord, we find ourselves resisting, just like Saul. We know where we should go. We know who has the answer. But instead of turning on worship music and praise, we struggle on in the flesh. We try to find a solution on our own. We refuse to submit to the Lord and to the Lord's word. Can I encourage you today that where the spirit of the Lord goes, the evil spirits flee. The answer to Saul's problem was right there in his face all along. But instead of surrendering, he stayed proud. Don't let that be said of you this morning. As I wrap this up, here in 1 Samuel chapter 16, this, this amazing chapter, we see really an interesting type of the world that we are living in today. Follow me here. David is anointed as king in chapter 16. But we know, if you're a Bible student, that David doesn't get anointed as king until many years in the future. Or he doesn't really receive the crown until many years in the future. Here's Saul, a man who's rejected God's word. He's departed from following God, and yet he's still on the throne. He's still calling the shots. He's still in control. How is that a type of the world that we live in today? Well, in this way. Jesus, too, has been anointed as king. He is our Messiah, our Savior. He died. He was buried. He's risen again. He's ascended into heaven and he sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven. 
He is the King of Kings, but listen, He will not receive His kingdom until we don't know when. We know He's going to receive that kingdom. The Bible tells us that moment is imminent, meaning it could happen any moment, guys. For you prophecy students that are looking at the end times prophecies, you know we're on the brink. We have to be living ready. I don't care what anybody says. We better be ready. But Jesus still has not received that kingdom here on earth. However, Satan has rejected God's word, departed from following God, and because of sin, he's been placed on the throne. When Adam and Eve fell, they surrendered that title deed to the earth, so to speak. And it came under Satan's control. And so he's temporarily calling the shots in the world we live in today. Why are things so crazy in the world we live in today? Why hasn't cancer been defeated Why does evil thrive? Why do good people, even Christians, have to suffer and die? Why is evil and suffering seemingly disproportionate to the lives that people are living? Well, we don't have all the answers to that. But part of the answer to these questions is that according to God's perfect plan for the greatest possible good... Jesus, the anointed one, the Messiah, has not received his kingdom on earth yet. What is he waiting for, we might ask? Why is he allowing Satan to to, to wreak havoc? Why is evil and sin so rampant? Why is God just allowing it? What's he waiting for, we might ask? Well, the Bible tells us that God is waiting for you. And for me. Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 9 says, The Lord isn't really being slow about His promise, as some people think. No, He's being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. Maybe God is waiting for you today. Maybe God is waiting for you to repent and to turn to the Lord Maybe he's waiting for you to surrender so that you can escape the wrath that is to come, the wrath of a holy and righteous God against sin. When he comes and sets up his kingdom, he's going to right wrongs. He is the only judge who can see through the external appearances and read the motives of your heart. And one day, I can guarantee you, the Bible tells us it's true, every single one of us whether we choose to do so today, willingly, God, you're my king, or whether we choose to resist. And that one day when, he finally, when we finally see him, the Bible says that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Don't wait. Don't wait until that day. Recognize God's place. Recognize that he is waiting in his mercy, in his grace for you to make that decision today. Let's pray.